following presentation was recorded live by the Jewish Ethics Institute. Good evening, everybody. Good evening. It's 7.05, and I love to start on time. So welcome. I'm so glad that you're all here. Welcome, everybody, to the 2017 Jewish Medical Ethics Conference. It's my pleasure, along with my co-chair, Dr. Shelley Rubenfeld, to welcome you to tonight's conference. We are all in store for a great evening. We are so honored to have Rabbi Professor Avram Steinberg and Mr. Josh Blackman here this evening to engage us all in a lively discussion. This evening's conference grew out of a weekly medical ethics shiur led by Rabbi Yossi Grossman since 1998. We owe a tremendous debt of gratitude to Dr. Shelley Rubenfeld for facilitating and hosting that weekly shiur. I want to encourage everyone to consider studying something in any way about their own Judaism. I know that my weekly medical ethics shiur has been a lot of fun and most gratifying. Tonight's lecture is named in memory of my Saba, my grandfather. My Saba, Professor Rabbi Shlomo Margalit, had a profound influence over me and my religious journey. He was born in Tiberias in 1914, studied in Shivot in Jerusalem, and ultimately received, received smicha from Rav Kook. Saba was a professor of biblical and rabbinic literature and Hebrew language at Gratz College in Philadelphia for more than four decades. He served on the Medical Ethics Committee at the Albert Einstein Medical Center in Philadelphia for over 20 years. My family is honored to help support the Jewish Ethics Institute by underwriting this lecture named in memory of my Saba. I would like to thank tonight's corporate sponsors. They are the Methodist Hospital Research Institute, whose president and CEO, Dr. Mauro Ferrari, has hosted Dr. Steinberg all week. Thank you also to Homer Quintana, Dr. Ferrari's assistant, for his help this week. Thank you to Dr. Shelley Rubenfeld of the Center for Medicine After the Holocaust. Without your collective support, tonight's event would not be possible. I would also like to thank Tipara Falkov, Falkovsky, Miriam Gordon, and Brenda Klein, and a special, special thank you to Ahuva Grossman, who has basically put this whole event together, together single-handedly. I would also like to thank our rabbi, Rabbi Yossi Grossman. Without your hard work and dedication, we all would not be here. Finally, I would like to thank my wife, Michelle, for her love and support, and I wanted to acknowledge my in-laws, Jacoba and Raquel Goldberg. In order to receive your CME and CLE credits, please make sure you sign in at the front registration table, which was downstairs when you came in. In a week or two, you will be receiving an email from Methodist with a review of the conference. This review is necessary to receive your credits. After the 9 p.m. conclusion, there will be a minyan for Arvid. Our first speaker is Mr. Josh Blackman. Mr. Blackman is Associate Professor of Law at the South Texas College of Law in Houston. He specializes in constitutional law, the United States Supreme Court, and the intersection of law and technology. Mr. Blackman is the author of the critically acclaimed, Unprecedented, The Constitutional Challenge to Obamacare, and Unraveled, Obamacare, Religious Liberty, and Executive Power. Mr. Blackman has been honored by many organizations and has been a founder of several organizations. The most interesting, I thought, was his founding of Fantasy SCOTUS, the Internet's premier Supreme Court Fantasy League. 
Mr. Blackman is the author of over three dozen law review articles, and his commentary has appeared in the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, USA Today, LA Times, and other national publications. Please welcome to the podium, Mr. Blackman. I am very grateful to Rabbi Grossman for inviting me and for everyone for being here. And Rabbi Grossman asked me to talk about the interaction of medical ethics. Can you hear me? The interaction of medical ethics and U.S. law regarding religious liberty. And doctors face a very unique set of circumstances because at the very outset of your career, you take a special oath not the oath to the Constitution, but the Hippocratic Oath, which among other things says you shall do no harm, and you shall promote life, and you shall do things to derive cures, not end life. And that in many cases puts doctors at certain tensions with progressive culture and other regimes. Um, so what I'd like to talk about is how there are specific, uh, both federal and state laws, that provide protections for medical professionals. And then move on to some concrete examples of how religious liberty and the practice of medicine have intersected in recent years, uh, particularly in light of the Affordable Care Act, uh, most commonly known as Obamacare. Um, so the first thing to discuss is the First Amendment to the United States Constitution, which guarantees the rights of free exercise. Um, this traces from a long heritage of the United States and the colonies, which guarantee religious freedom where Mother England did not. You remember from Thanksgiving, the pilgrims came to America for religious liberty. Fortunately, that tradition pervaded us. So you may ask, well, wait a minute, Josh. Uh, does the First Amendment, this guarantee free exercise, protect my right as a doctor? So the short answer is it doesn't do too much. As the Supreme Court has interpreted the First Amendment, it primarily applies to what are called laws of general applicability. What does this mean? Let's say the government passes a law that says, um, I don't know, Jewish doctors cannot perform circumcisions, right? Something very precise, which is actually something floating around in the air. That kind of law would be a violation of the First Amendment because it targets a specific religion, okay? Now what if it's a more generalized law? No doctor can perform a circumcision, period. Is that singling out Jews? Not really. Lots of people get circumcisions, not just Jews. Is it singling out Jewish doctors? Not really. Lots of doctors of all faith perform these sorts of uh, rituals. So the First Amendment to the Constitution only prohibits the sorts of laws that single out or target a specific type of religious practice. But that's not the only a protection we have under the law. A second law is known as the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, or RIFRA for short. This was a law passed by Congress in the early 1990s that provides additional protections for your religious liberty. And what this law says is that the government cannot substantially burden your religion unless you have a very good reason for doing it. So indeed, if a law was passed, a federal law passed saying that uh, you can't perform Brittany law, you can't perform a circumcision, that would very likely run afoul of this federal law. Uh, many states have also implemented their own RIFRAs. So even Texas, if Texas tried passing a similar law, you would be protected. Okay? Beyond the First Amendment and the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, 
You have a number of uh, statutes passed by Congress um, over the years, specifically protecting you with respect to uh, uh, having to perform abortions, and having to perform sterilization, or having to perform euthanasia. Now, as many of you know, a decision in 1973, actually the uh, anniversary was this week of Roe v. Wade. Uh, Roe v. Wade established that a, a woman has a right to obtain an abortion in certain circumstances. That doesn't mean doctors have to provide those abortions. And uh, uh, additionally, it doesn't mean the government has to pay for those abortions. And that's how the law stands now. So there are three primary laws that have been adopted that provide specific protections for medical professionals who do not wish to facilitate in abortions. Uh, the first is called the Church Amendment. And this was enacted in 1973, uh, the same year that Roe v. Wade was decided. And it gives protections not only to doctors, but also to nurses, uh, midwives, and even hospitals. And it basically provides a way that says, if your organization takes any federal money, which is basically all uh, organizations, um, the organization cannot discriminate against personnel if they refuse to assist in the performance of an abortion or sterilization for religious reasons. So this law, which is uh, nearly 40-something years old, says you cannot be fired for having to uh, conscience right of refusing to do an abortion. Further, if you are an organization that receives research funds, right, we're not talking about a hospital where people get treatment, but a research fund, if you have any religious objection, maybe for stem cell research or the like, you have a federal right to object and not participate in these uh, proceedings. Uh, and this is not just for doctors, if you're an intern or a resident, these protections under law uh, provide to you. Uh, a number of years ago, there was a big stink where um, some of the accrediting bodies said that to get a residency, you need to actually have abortion training, and that medical schools were required to provide abortion training. Um, that, that simply was contrary to federal law. And if a resident decides to object to this form of training, they cannot be penalized for doing so with forms of uh, not receiving their license or anything else. The second law I'd like to talk about is something called the Coast Snow Amendment. And this law provides uh, protections for uh, 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 doctors who don't want to perform or even make arrangements for referral for abortions. So one of the new uh, regimes is in California and other places it, has, it targets these so-called um, pregnancy crisis centers, which you, you may have seen. Uh, these are places that don't perform abortions and indeed try to talk women out of having them, providing adoption services and other types of treatment. Um, California passed a law saying, okay, if you want to have one of these uh, services, you're required by law to tell the patients that they can get a free government-provided abortion. So even if you're a doctor at one of these health centers, uh, some states are actually mandating that you actually refer to abortions. Um, this federal law prohibits it, but some of the state laws actually go beyond this. Uh, uh, so, so it's something to think about. This doesn't exist in Texas, but other states do have this. Um, the third specific law that I'd like to discuss is called the Weldon Amendment. And this has been in effect since 2004. And likewise, this prohibits any sort of discrimination for any healthcare entity to uh, uh, decide not to pay for an abortion, right? So if a hospital, for example, decides not to pay for an abortion, this actually was a lawsuit by the ACLU a few years ago. The American Civil Liberties Union sued a hospital because they refused to provide abortions. Uh, uh, and this law specifically prohibits the sort of uh, 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 lawsuits like that because you can't be penalized um, for doing so. So those two laws, the, the Free Exercise Clause and RIFRA, and those uh, three provisions of law, the Church Amendment, 
the Code Snow Amendment and the Weldon Amendment, are your primary legal vehicles to resist the sorts of um, uh, uh, to resist the sorts of requirements to perform these things. Um, now, I'd like to discuss a few specific cases that are actively live right now that impact how medical professionals can dispense treatment consistent with the law. Uh, the first was a law from Washington. And this law mandated that pharmacists dispense all manner of birth control. And that includes the morning after pill and certain types of emergency contraceptives. Um, there were pharmacists in the state who objected and said, um, uh, you know, I don't want to be, I don't want to issue these drugs. This goes against my religious beliefs. I don't want to have to, if I remember the quote, the pharmacist said, when I look at a pregnant mother, I see not one patient but two. And I can't in good conscience dispense a pill that I know will turn that back into one patient. Um, so this doctor, pharmacist, brought a challenge under the free exercise clause of the Constitution. And the courts ruled against her. And the reason why is that this law was not targeting any religion. It was a general law that said all doctors must dispense these drugs. Indeed, as a profession, doctors are highly regulated. And virtually every aspect of what you do or prescribe has some sort of law governing it. Um, this case was actually appealed to the Supreme Court. And in a, in a, in a somewhat uh, uh, curious move, uh, the Supreme Court denied review. Um, this is during the time now where Justice Scalia had passed away. And the court was down to eight justices. Um, and there was actually a dissent from Justice Alito, Justice Thomas, and the Chief Justice. And they were worried. And they said that this decision marks a dark day for religious freedom. Because now people will be compelled to engage in these sorts of behaviors uh, contrary to their religious beliefs. And this was a very, uh, 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 the justices were very concerned about this. Um, even though we may get another justice uh, in, I don't know, three or four days, you can ask me about that later if you'd like, um, it's not entirely clear if you have these sorts of protections. <laughs> another challenge that's actually ongoing now uh, reflects the Affordable Care Act. Um, so under the Affordable Care Act, the law says that medical health professionals cannot discriminate on the basis of sex, on the basis of gender. And that's been a general principle of federal law for decades. You can't discriminate against a patient saying, no, I don't want to treat women. You can't do that. Um, but the Obama administration has interpreted that uh, very broadly. And they said that means you can't discriminate on the basis of gender identity. Uh, now, what does this mean? So for example, if a patient walks in and says, I would like a gender reassignment surgery, uh, ask a doctor what that means, there are plenty of doctors in the room, uh, and you decline saying, I'm a Jewish hospital, I'm a Catholic hospital, and I don't wish to provide um, such treatment, then the hospital's at risk of losing their federal funding and can be sued by the patient. Um, so a few months ago in the summer, a group of Catholic hospitals in Texas, as well as the state of Texas, which runs medical facilities, uh, brought suit and challenged this regulation. And on December 31st, a federal court in uh, Wichita Falls, Texas, up, up north, issued an order putting this rule on hold. So for those of you who work in Texas hospitals, uh, uh, you're not going to be bound by this. But this was a sort of change that didn't go through any sort of congressional activity. This was done through uh, executive action by the former president. 
Um, so I think you're getting the sense right now that there's a strong push uh, uh, by many to use, the, uh, use these uh, guarantees of equal access to healthcare to put physicians in these difficult places. And to circle back to the Hippocratic Oath, there's one aspect which I came across in my research that I never really fully appreciated. Um, Hippocratic Oath isn't only for doctors, it's also for patients. And what do I mean by that? If you're a patient and you want to make sure, say you're pregnant, and you want to make sure that your doctor will never uh, 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 perform an abortion on you, right? And even if there's something going wrong and maybe you're unconscious, you want to make sure your doctor will not do that to you. Having a doctor who can say without any doubt, I will never perform an abortion on you, is actually something that patients may wish. Likewise, say you're a patient with cancer or some awful disease, and you are morally opposed to euthanasia. And you want to make sure that at no point will your doctor even suggest as a form of treatment euthanasia. Having a doctor who can say emphatically, I will never do this, puts you at ease and actually enables you to be much more uh, 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 willing to confide in the doctor and let that doctor comply with the Hippocratic Oath. So there's a very important synergy uh, between religious liberty, uh, the Hippocratic Oath, and the actual right of the patient to choose. Uh, in my remaining time, I'd like to talk about the Affordable Care Act, uh, Obamacare. Uh, the, the good doctor mentioned my two books on this, called <coughs> Unprecedented and Unraveled. But one of the biggest conflicts in religious liberty right now concerns what's called the contraceptive mandate, the Affordable Care Act. Now, let me give you a little bit of history here. When the Affordable Care Act was being debated, one of the biggest controversies was, will this law fund abortion, right? Will this law use federal money to pay for abortions? Um, now, there's something called the Hyde Amendment, which is a provision that says federal law cannot fund abortions. But there were still concerns that the Obamacare law would do this. So, President Obama signed this executive order, which says, I will not fund abortions. Now, for those of you who have been paying attention the past week, executive orders don't mean very much. Uh, in fact, they can be repealed by the next president in five seconds. Uh, so this executive order was not very powerful. But the real debate actually reflected something going on in the Senate. A senator from Maryland, Barbara Mikulski, introduced an amendment known as the Women's Health Amendment. Okay, what was this amendment? It said, Insurance companies must provide uh, a, quote, preventive care for women without charging them extra. Great. What's preventive care? The law did not define preventive care. Instead, the law punted. And it said, okay, this other agency you've never heard of, this alphabet soup agency, gets to define what preventive care is. Surprise, surprise, this agency said, preventive care includes the entire range of FDA-approved contraceptives. Everything from the condom to the birth control pill to the morning after pill to IUDs. Um, and these are a number of products that can actually operate following uh, a fertilization. So what happened next? There was a big debate about religious liberty. How would religious groups be subject to this? As it was originally drafted, all religious groups were required to give their employees birth control whether they wanted to or not. So there were several rounds of accommodations. Follow me here. So the first round went like this. They said, if you're a religious organization and you operate a charity that, you know, operate a house of worship that primarily targets people of your own faith and employs people of your own faith, then you're exempt. Okay, so what happens if, you know, you have a, a house of worship that operates a soup kitchen, for example, that serves a community at large? 
and doesn't check what your religion is at the, at the door. In that case, you are not religious enough to meet, the, meet this exemption. So originally, most churches and synagogues that did outreach work were not even qualified, and they were bound to pay for this. This blew up in their face, right? So the president said, I'll give it a different go. All houses of worship are exempt. However, religious charities are not exempt. Religious charities are accommodated, right? Accommodated sounds so wonderful, doesn't it? Accommodated, right? What does it mean to be accommodated? The religious charities don't have to pay for these products. What happens is that they simply hijack your healthcare plan and use your plan to provide this. So if the Bay Rambam or the Kolel or the organization provide, well, they don't provide healthcare for their employees, I'm sorry. But you know, assuming, <laughs> assuming a Jewish charity actually gave their employees healthcare, which I, I don't know if that ever happens, but assuming if it does, you would now be required to sponsor a plan that provides people with products that you no doubt deem uh, a sinful. Right? So what happened with this law? There were two major Supreme Court cases involving this aspect of religious liberty. The first was one called Hobby Lobby. This was a story you probably heard of. It's a craft store. And this corporation, this for-profit corporation, actually objected providing certain forms of birth control. They challenged the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court said, well, uh, can, can you do this? And so there are two questions, right? First, can a corporation, can a private corporation, have a religious identity, right? If you come after me, I'm a person, I have a religious identity. Can a corporation have a religious identity? This question shouldn't be as controversial as you may think. Every single synagogue is a corporation. Every single kosher butcher shop is a corporation. Every single organization uses the corporate form for protection. In fact, there was a Supreme Court case in the 60s involving a kosher mark, and a city passed a law saying all stores must stay open on Saturday. And the kosher mark said, I don't think so. So the mere fact that you have a kosher supermarket doesn't mean you can't get the protections of religious freedom. But the second question at issue in this case was, can this corporation deny their female employees this birth control? And the corporation said, look, this burdens our religious, our religious identity to be forced to pay for these products. <coughs> the Supreme Court considered this, and in a 5-4 decision, it was 5-4, the court ruled for Hobby Lobby. And they said, even though you're a corporation, right, even though you're a corporation, you still have religious rights. One of the more disturbing aspects of this case, and I, I, I've written about this at length, is the, uh, the Anti-Defamation League actually filed a brief against Hobby Lobby, um, uh, which is a striking situation, because of one example that was raised in arguments. So Justice Alito asked a question. He asked, what would happen if the government passed a law banning kosher slaughter? And this is not a joke. This is in several countries in Europe. Kosher slaughter has been banned, right? What if they ban kosher slaughter? And it was a corporation, right? They said, well, maybe individual butchers can go after slaughter. No, no, no. What if they ban corporations, you know, a kosher butcher from doing slaughter? And under the ADL's position, the kosher butcher that's incorporated that, no defense to law. So fortunately, I think the court held that the mere fact that a corporation does not deprive you of the ability to protect your own religious freedom. But the second question was much tougher. They said, well, the government can't make you pay for these birth control products 
Why? If it's so important, the government can pay for it itself, right? Don't make companies pay for stuff. If it's so important to give women birth control, let someone else pay for it. Okay. So that was the first case. That was a Hobby Lobby decision. But that did not resolve all the Affordable Care Act's challenges affecting religious liberty. The second case involved a group that's far more uh, friendly, which is the Little Sisters of the Poor. Okay, everyone's heard of these. This is a group of nuns, and they run a home for the elderly. Uh, it's actually a funny story. I was at the argument at the Supreme Court, and I had lunch afterwards with, uh, with the Little Sisters of the Poor. And I'm a room full of nuns. I'm a Jewish boy from New York. What do I know about these nuns? But you know, they're, they're really nice. So here was the nuns' problem, right? The nuns said, uh, we don't want to be part of a healthcare plan that uh, includes this sort of contraceptives. We find it sinful. And I think a lot of Jewish organizations would probably take a somewhat similar position, especially with respect to the abortifacients of the drugs of the like. Um, so they challenged it to the Supreme Court once again. And unfortunately, due to the shorthanded Supreme Court, there were down to eight justices, they couldn't get together a majority. Uh, so the Supreme Court said, well, there are these arguments here, arguments there. They said to everyone, go figure it out. Like, you know, go, go try and negotiate. Go try and work out a, a compromise. And the parties basically said, we can't work this out. And the Supreme Court said, go figure it out anyway. Um, as it stands now, the parties have said, um, we can't figure it out. Mr. Trump, help us out. Uh, so, so that's where the case will likely wind up. And I suspect that a lot of these various religious liberty challenges will subside with the new administration uh, one way or the other. But the, the broader point I'd like to make, and that this is moving towards uh, uh, the closing, is that uh, uh, as medical professionals, you should all remain uh, vigilant in ensuring that your consciences are not violated. Um, it's very easy for a government lawyer to pass, uh, or for a member of Congress to pass a law um, mandating that various procedures be provided. Um, but they always and often forget that there's actually a human being on the other end of that law who is being forced to provide that service, often in violation of their conscience. Um, that's all I have. I understand we'll be taking questions afterwards. Uh, so I thank you very much for your attention. I welcome Dr. Uh, Rabbi Dr. Steinberg for his comments, and I hope to hear from you later. Thank you very much. This is really remarkable. Dr. Moses actually makes things run on time. He's never heard of Jewish Standard Time. Now, he gave me three minutes for an introduction, but Josh finished nine minutes early. So, Ron, what do you want me to do with that nine minutes? Three minutes. Three minutes. There you go. I have the privilege, the pleasure, and the honor of introducing Rabbi Dr. Steinberg, who's been with us all week. It's been delightful experience from having him here at the Research Institute and other events. And I want to tell you a bit about him because he's truly a remarkable man. He comes to us from Jerusalem where he is a pediatric neurologist. So in the world of bioethics, he has a lot of credibility because he deals with a lot of serious illnesses. So for those of you who are physicians, you understand when he talks about bioethics, it's not just theory. Secondly, he literally wrote the book on Jewish medical ethics, the Encyclopedia of Jewish Medical Ethics, for which he won the Israel Prize. He, was, he did such a good job that he was asked to become the head editor of the Talmud of the Encyclopedia, which was a project that was started in 1942. We thought it would take about 100 years to finish, but he hopes to finish it in his lifetime. 
and hopefully within the next decade or so, and this is really a remarkable achievement. Among his other accomplishments, he's also a national co-chairman of the Bioethics Commission in Israel. So he not only is quite knowledgeable about the Talmud, Torah, and all of Jewish medical ethics, but he actually deals in the real world of legislation. He deals in the real world of legislation as well as the real world of medicine. And Josh is somewhat, I mean, I don't know how this works in the law world, but he's been involved in, in 3,000 expert opinions on pediatric neurology and uh, uh, medical ethical issues, which gave me pause. That's a lot of experts' opinions. He's also written many, many books, hundreds of articles, and the best of all, having spent some time as an extremely humble and kind man, he's just a delight to be with, and fortunately he brought his wife Lynn with him to use him. We've had the pleasure of enjoying her as well. So without further ado, and I hope I haven't gone over my allotted three minutes, Ron, please welcome a Rabbi Professor Avram Steiner. Thank you for your eulogy. <laughs> I don't think you spoke about me. There's someone here in the room that you spoke about. Um, it's really a great pleasure to be here again. I had the honor and the pleasure to be here once in this uh, setup, and I want to thank uh, Dr. Rubenfeld, Dr. Moses, Rabbi Grossman, and all those who are and have been involved in organizing uh, this event. It's a continuation of several events that went on this week, as you heard, and I have had really the honor and the pleasure to meet a very nice group of people of diverse thinking, and uh, uh, I, I learned a lot this uh, particular week. <coughs> The subject that uh, we are dealing with uh, this evening is quite complex because it involves ethics, religion, law, social sciences, <coughs> emotions, and it's really a very complex issue when it comes to details of particular instances. And as we heard earlier, it really can involve patients, can involve healthcare providers, not only physicians, it's nurses, it's radiologists, it's ultrasonographers, it's lab people, it's pharmacists, the whole gamut of the healthcare profession, and it involves institutions, hospitals, research centers, and so on. And from an ethical point of view, the following is the dilemma. <clears throat> On the one hand, we live in an era where autonomy has become the overruling principle that governs all the decisions in patient's care. Meaning that each of us has his own autonomy to choose what he wants to be treated with and what he doesn't want to be treated with which sounds okay. We all want our freedom, we want to make sure that what is being done to us is done with our full informed consent and agreement 
and we know what is being done for us, and we expect that what we want to be done to us will indeed be done to us. So that is the first half of the game. On the other hand, there is also the autonomy, or there should be also the autonomy, of the physician. The physician has his own world outlook, his own principles, his own conscience. When the two come together and agree on, on a plan, then it's perfect. But the dilemma starts when the patient wants a certain treatment to be done to him, or refuses a certain treatment to be done to him, because that is what he wants to exercise his autonomy. But on the other hand, the physician who has to exercise the wishes of the patient, from his perspective, he doesn't agree with it. Not only on a professional level, but on a conscientious level, on a religious level, on a philosophical level. So how do you resolve a problem when two sides disagree and each has his own autonomy? That is a problem number one. Problem number two is, what about a whole hospital that operates according to bylaws that binds the administration of the hospital to act in a certain way? And here walks in a patient and says, I want you to do to me what is legally owed to me, although you, by, by, by your bylaws, feel that that is a sin to do, and you don't want to do it, but you, you have to serve my autonomy. So how do you solve these issues? And before solving it, here are just a few examples to add to uh, what we heard already. A patient who is terminally ill, who has six months expected uh, survival, he's suffering, he comes into the hospital, he meets his personal physician and he says, I want to die now. I don't want to suffer the extra six months. It is my body, it is my wish, it is my autonomy. I want to die now. How will you die now? Only if I, as a physician, will take out my pistol and shoot you. But usually in hospitals we don't walk with pistols, so we have an equivalent to a pistol. We'll inject you KCL, barbiturates, morphine in a high dose, and you'll die right away. So I'll do an act that will fulfill your wish. But I, as a, as a person, I'm not only a doctor, I'm a person, I object to such an act. To me, it's murder, and I don't want to commit a murder. So here is a real dilemma. We heard about abortion. A woman comes in and says, I have a child and a dog and a dog, and that's enough for me. I don't want another child. I got pregnant for whatever reason, and I want to abort the baby. And you, the doctor, you, the obstetrician, you know how to do it, and please fulfill my autonomous wish. But this doctor says, according to my belief, according to my standards, according to my conscience, there is a form of murder which I don't want to commit. But you have to do it because I have my autonomy. But he says, but I have my own autonomy. So how do we resolve that? 
We can go on and on with examples of this kind, some less severe, some more severe, and see what actually can be done. So I think that in a fair world, if everyone would play fair, because there are different patients with different expectations, and there are different physicians with different conscious and decision-making uh, understandings and beliefs. It should be so that indeed the autonomy of the patient should be preserved as long as it's covered by law. If the law allows it, then the autonomy of the patient should be respected, but not necessarily by a physician or a hospital that they object to this particular act. So that the patient should find a place where the physician or the hospital agree with this law and can fulfill what the patient wants. So everyone gets out and gets his case and, and wins without enforcing one on the other things which are very, very objectable on principle. It's not just that I don't like to do it. There is a principle behind it. So for instance, in Israel, <coughs> I had the privilege to chair a committee to propose a legislation on end-of-life issues. This committee was composed of 59 members. <coughs> now imagine three Jews meeting and talking about the weather, so you probably will get six opinions. <laughs> and here, it's not three, but 59, and it's not the weather, but end-of-life issues. So you can imagine what went on during the two years of the liberations. But somehow, we managed to get to a, a wide consensus, not it would be impossible that everyone should agree, but it was a very wide consensus, and finally, it was enacted as a law. One of the paragraphs in the law says that, by the way, in Israel, uh, <coughs> euthanasia is forbidden, uh, physician-assisted suicide is forbidden by this particular legislation, but we went even further on that issue than, let's say, the United States. This law forbids any act that hastens death. It is not only an act that directly kills the patient, but any act that hastens death is also forbidden. So if someone is on a respirator and you remove the respirator, you did an act that removed the respirator, and by your act the patient died, that is equivalent to shooting him. You did something which killed him. You can argue if it is really the same, but that is what the Israeli law finally accepts. Now, the Israeli law allows withholding treatments that would prolong, that would prolong life if the patient refuses it. The patient comes and says, I'm suffering enough. If I stop breathing, don't put me on a respirator. That is acceptable. However, not every physician and not every rabbi accept this position, as you could imagine, right? Especially in a Jewish country. So what happens if a patient comes in 
and says, I don't want you to put me on a respirator. And he's covered by the law. Even by the Israeli law, he's covered. But the particular physician that is in charge of this patient believes that his responsibility is to do whatever is possible to prolong the life of this patient. And he doesn't agree to withhold this treatment. So the law allows him to step aside, not to be the treating physician of this patient, and another physician who does agree to this protocol will become the, the patient's physician and will fulfill his wishes which are covered by the law. The same holds true with abortion. If a woman comes in, according to the Israeli law, abortion is very, very liberal. Uh, many indications that by law the woman is allowed to request abortion, but by Jewish law, by halakha, it is not acceptable, part of those indications. And a woman comes into the hospital and says, I want an abortion because I'm over the age of 40. That's stipulated in the law that automatically she deserves to, to abortion. So all she needs to do is take out her ID card, show her uh, age, and she requests uh, abortion. But the physician said, why should I abort a healthy child that is developing just because you are at a certain age? I disagree. So the law allows this physician to say, I can't treat you, but there are other physicians who would <coughs> do it willingly or accept it for whatever reason, and they can treat you. The same holds true for institutions. I work at a hospital in Jerusalem called Sharet Zedek, <coughs> which operates according to halakha. And for instance, abortion is permissible, but under very strict criteria that, according to halakha, are allowed. And the hospital, as such, does not provide abortion, even though it is permissible by law, if it is not permissible by halakha. So just the week before I came here, a journalist, to do a, a provocation to the hospital, called up and said she is pregnant. She wasn't, but she called up to say, I'm pregnant. I was diagnosed as carrying a baby with Down syndrome. And please uh, make me an appointment in your hospital. I'm coming in for an abortion. But according to halakha, Down syndrome is not an indication for abortion. And therefore, she was rejected. So she wrote several articles in, in, the, in the media, both the written media and the electronic media, and the whole big stink about Charet Zedek, that they violate the law. According to the law, she could have had abortion, but the hospital doesn't want to do it. <coughs> so my response to it was, <coughs> Five minutes drive from Sharet Zedek is Hadassah Hospital. So why did you choose to call us Sharet Zedek and not make the same phone call to Hadassah? Well, they agreed to do it. There's no problem. Go to Hadassah and do it. You come to us because you know that we have a conscientious uh, uh, bylaw that the hospital does not do such things. 
And it's just a provocation. It has nothing to do with reality because you can get what you want just driving five minutes further. However, it may be more complicated. And it's now an ongoing uh, <coughs> court case against another <coughs> hospital that operates <coughs> excuse me, operates according to Alaha, called Laniado in Atania. They do IVF procedures only to couples who are married. They don't do it to single women. Thank you. They don't do it to a man and a woman that just walk in from the street and say, we want to get a, a child by IVF. <coughs> the couple has to be married, which is a form of discrimination. I come in, I want IVF. By law, I'm entitled to get it. Who are you to tell me that you're not doing it to me? So they were sued, and it's an ongoing court case that they are violating the, a, a discrimination based on religious principles of the hospital where the patient uh, is not happy with the results. And here the argument, go five minutes further to another hospital and do it, did not work. Because Laniato is the only hospital in a very wide uh, area, so for her to travel to Tel Aviv or to Haifa would really be a burden. So that's why she claimed that is not an excuse, go to another hospital, because to go for treatments and, and driving back and forth would be a burden, and why shouldn't you do it? So I don't know what the court will rule on it, but that is the principle of this hospital, and they wouldn't uh, give in on that issue. So these are some of the issues that can be solved if everyone would agree that what I want as a patient and what I agree as a physician can be done, but not necessarily by a particular physician or by a particular hospital, that probably would solve most of the problems of this type. Now what happens halakhically from a Jewish uh, legal point of view, if you work in a hospital as an <coughs> obstetrician, and the hospital tells you either you do what we do here, or you're fired. So if a woman comes in for an abortion, <coughs> and let's say the reason for the abortion is such that from a halakhic point of view, it should not be. <coughs> But it happens that this woman came to you, to this physician that believes that he shouldn't do it. And the, administ the administration of the hospital tells this physician, either you do it or you're fired. What should he do? What should do a nurse that is involved in the operation of the abortion if she believes that that is a wrong decision to do? What should do an ultrasonographer who tests women in pregnancy and detects all kinds of abnormalities whereby the woman will decide to do an abortion although this abnormality does not want an abortion from a lucky point of view. So these are different levels of involvement that you are forced to be involved against a halachic ruling where you are threatened 
with losing your job, losing your license, or whatever. So according to Jewish law, there are three levels of uh, an outsider involved in an act that is forbidden where it is done to another person. The first level is a direct action. If I am going to do the abortion, that is an act that is forbidden and I'm not allowed to do it even if I lose my job. Because violating directly by an act is a sin that you shouldn't do, no matter what. The same holds true not only for the obstetrician, but also for the nurse that works in the OR and helps out for the uh, abortion, and the anesthesiologist who is not really cutting and doing the abortion, but without him, the abortion will not be performed because the woman has to be put to sleep and he has to, to do it. So this team is all regarded as doing an act which is sinful and is not permissible. However, if someone is helping the process but not doing the act himself directly, there are two optional levels which are handled differently. One is called Lifneiver and one is called Messiah. Lifneiver is a verse in, in, the, in the Torah that says Lifneiver not ten mirshot. You shouldn't put a stumbling block before a blind man. So the understanding, the simple understanding is as it sounds. Someone who is blind and you come and put a stumbling ball in, uh, uh, a stumbling block and he falls, so you injured him, so don't do it. But the, in the Talmud, it is interpreted in a much wider sense. The blind is not necessarily a physically blind person, but he may be blind in his behavior. He behaves wrongfully. And you shouldn't put a stumbling, uh, a stumbling block before him so that he will actually perform the sin. The example given in the Talmud is concerning a Nazareth. And as you know, a Nazareth is not allowed to cut his hair, is not allowed to drink wine. There are limitations when he vows to, to be such a person. So let's assume that he stands on the right side of the bank of a river and there's a bottle of wine on the other side of the bed. And he, knowing that he's not allowed to drink wine, he has an urge and he must drink a cup of wine now. That he, he can't withstand it. But he can't get to this bottle, it's on the other side of the river. So if someone there will do the act and bring it to him, that is a forbidden act because without this person's act, he would not sin. Although the person did not act on the sin, he just helped him, but he helped him in such a necessary way that without his help, he wouldn't sin. So that is biblically forbidden. So hence, if I know that by my helping someone to perform an act, that without my help, 
he will not do it. And that act is sinful. I'm not allowed to help it in that level. However, there is a different level. And that is called Messiah or helping, whereby I am helping the person, but even without my help, the sin can be performed. So if we take again the bottle of wine, and this time it's on the same side of the bank of the river, but it's a little further down. And the Nazareth tells me, help me to get the bottle. If I bring it to him, I indeed helped him, but even without my help, he could walk himself and take the bottle. So that is an instance of helping without being the sole cause for him to sin. Another example would be that if he asks me to do a certain act which is sinful, but he can find anyone else easily that would do the same thing, that even if I help him, it is not as severe because it can be done even without my help. So for instance, if a pregnant woman comes to an ultrasonographer and he does the test, she could come to him and if he would refuse, she can go to another ultrasonographer easily and he will do the test and she will perform the abortion based on his findings so she's not dependent totally on my findings. Furthermore, <clears throat> an ultrasonogram is a step further from abortion. In other words, if I'll do the ultrasonography and I'll detect a certain defect, it is not necessarily that the woman will decide to do an abortion. She may have <coughs> second thoughts, she may have a second opinion that says it's not so bad. It is not directly related. My act is the act that caused the abortion. So here, if the ultrasonographer is threatened that if he won't do ultrasounds to every woman that comes, whether she promises not to do an abortion or she doesn't promise it, you'll be fired. He doesn't have to go to this extent and lose his job because what he is doing is two steps away from the sinful act, which can even not happen at all. Whereas the physician, the obstetrician that sits in the OR and opens the woman and, and makes the abortion, that is an act that there's no other step before the sin, and therefore that is regarded uh, much uh, more severe. Just a few months, I was in Toronto, in Toronto, and they asked me to discuss with them, the, the, the Jewish physicians there, in Ontario there is now a law that accepts physician-assisted suicide, and it requires that every physician, even if he doesn't want to do the act, has to do a meaningful referral which means that if a person comes to any physician and says, I want you to assist me to commit suicide, and the physician says, I don't do such things, he cannot be forced to do it, at least as of now. I don't know what will be the next step. But as of now, he cannot be forced to do it. But he is forced by law to give this patient a meaningful referral, which means here is the name of a physician, his phone number, his address, 
where you can go and he will do the physician assisted suicide act. So is this act by the physician who indeed did not do the killing of this patient but made a meaningful referral, is it forbidden to a degree that they should refuse it even if they lose the, their job? So my understanding is <coughs> that that certainly the physician, the referring physician, is not doing an act of killing. So that is certainly much further than the obstetrician who actually performs the abortion. And without the meaningful referral of myself, this patient can get the information anywhere else. I mean, I'm not the only source that knows who this physician somewhere is doing physician-assisted suicide. Obviously, it's a known fact to many people. So the fact that I'm giving him <coughs> a meaningful referral is not lifnaiver, it's not the level of the two banks of the river that without me it will not happen. So therefore, I thought that if they are forced to do it, they are allowed to do it. But to my mind, this should not be a law because there's no, no sense in forcing someone to do a meaningful referral, which is the government's responsibility. They should post uh, <coughs> all kinds of, uh, of uh, declarations and, and informations, where, where can you go, what forms, and so on. Why should it be my individual physician's responsibility to do something which I feel is wrong to do? I have no choice, but it is wrong to do. So again, we can solve it on a much better level, but not always is it solved in that level, and then we are faced with a real dilemma how to solve it from a halakhic point of view. And these were just a few examples on the levels where preferably you shouldn't get into this situation, but if you are in this situation, you are drawn into the situation, and you are forced to act upon, depends what you are asked to do. If you are asked to do a direct act that is sinful, you're not allowed to do. If you are asked to do an act of help that you are the only one that can help and the consequence will be directly related to your help, you're not allowed to do, which is rare. But if it relates to a help that can be obtained from other sources or it is something that the patient can do himself, then if I can't avoid it, that uh, can be permissible. So these are some of the dilemmas. And again, I think that uh, a clever uh, government should not impose burdens neither on the patient nor on the healthcare services and find a solution that the patient can get what the patient wants, which legally he deserves or she deserves, but do it by people who agree to it. Do it by institutions who agree to it and not enforce it on those who have a, an objection. And finally, another legislation that was passed uh, in the last decade in Israel has to do with the definition of the moment of death. Up to recently, the definition was the cessation of 
respiration and cardiac function. Whoever had signs that his heart is functioning or his breathing is uh, going on, he's not yet dead. Once the respirators have been invented and following organ transplants become, became uh, an option, a new definition came to the world, which is called brain death, which means that a person is defined legally dead despite the fact that his heart is still functioning, fully functioning. And because his heart is still functioning, actually all his organs are functioning. The only organ that is not functioning according to this definition is the brain. And because respiration comes from the brain stem, and if the brain stem is dead, there's no respiration. So this person has the sign of death by not being able to breathe, but other than that, he's alive. His parts are alive. And by definition, we call this person dead. Now, I think every country in the world accepted this definition legally, including Israel. But there are some rabbis who disagree with it, who still think that the definition has to do with the heart as well. So as long as the heart is functioning, according to their definition, the person is still alive. And if you withdraw the respirator, or if you take out an organ, you actually killed this patient that by other definitions is a dead body. Okay, so it's a little complicated. So personally, and I'm not going into the halakhic debate, personally I think that from a halakhic point of view, what we call today brain death is an acceptable definition, halakhically. That's my personal view based on many uh, rabbis who hold that way. But there are ma many important rabbis who disagree, who think that the person is still alive. So when this act came before the Knesset to define the moment of death, and the definition was as the brain death definition is uh, accepted, I was asked by one of the members of the Knesset from the Yadut uh, Torah from the Haredi community to come with him to Rabbi Yashiv, who was the most uh, important authoritative uh, person at that time in the world, to get his decision what he should vote in the Knesset. Should he vote for this law or against? So I came with him to Rabbi Yashiv. He was at that time over 90 years old, but he was very sharp and very with it. So, that's a sign of something? <laughs> so, uh, I came with this member of Knesset to Abel Yashiv and I explained to Abel Yashiv what the law really says, what the conditions are, what the consequences are. We, we dealt with the whole matter. So he said he's very unhappy because according to his position, what we are calling dead by this definition of the law is still a live person. And if you withdraw the respirator, you are killing it. So he doesn't agree to it. So I said on the spot, taking a responsibility, 
What about if we'll add a paragraph that says that those who on principle don't accept the definition of brain death and they think that the person is alive until the heart stops, this person should remain on the respirator until the heart stops. <coughs> so the primary position of the law will be that a brain dead person is dead, but for those who don't accept it on principle, for those, he will still be kept on a respirator until the heart will stop. Obviously, the law can't say until he will die of a cardiac death because he's already dead by definition. You can't die twice. It's enough to die once, right? So he said, that's excellent. If you can do it, that's very good. And he told the member, the Knesset <coughs> member, vote against the law, but make sure that it passes that way. Which means that in principle, he would be happier if the whole law would say that all depends on respiration and heart, and Everyone is still alive. But he understands that there are others who disagree with him, and, and he admitted it. And the Knesset is going to vote the way they want and not the way he wants. But at least if there is an exception that will cover his position, <coughs> then why not such a law? And I think it is a very nice way in a general Term, not only on a personal individual level to solve such problems. Because the whole difference, by the way, statistically speaking, between declaring a person who is brain dead, dead now and waiting on the respirator until his heart stops, on the average, it's between 12 and 24 hours. So that if someone is brain dead and you still keep him on a respirator without uh, intervening further than that, most of them, their heart will stop within 12 to 24 hours. So for 24 hours, to make a disruption and uneasiness on the part of those who feel that you killed our next of kin, to me, doesn't make sense. And if we can solve it in that way, why not do it in a, in a pluralistic way so that everyone can come out happy, not that dying is such a happy thing, but at least uh, afterwards there won't be a guilty. So I think that should be the direction of societies to solve uh, when there are the collisions between uh, the physician and the patient so that both sides will end up feeling good with their conscientious approach. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Steinberg. Don't sit down so quickly. We're going to have uh, some questions. And Professor Blackman. Yes. Whoever has any questions, please come up to the mic. this to either one of you. Uh, we've had so much discussion about end-of-life issues, but what about 
beginning of life issues with the severely premature, so the baby really has no ability to express its own autonomy. Um, and you have two parents, they may not be in agreement. And the parameters are a, a little bit more difficult. Some of the resuscitative measures that you can do on even 23 or 24 weekers, possibly prolonging life, have virtual zero chance, especially between 23 to 24 weeks. Um, so I'm interested in your thoughts of ethically, holistically, and also what they do in Israel on those issues. Let alone, nobody's really touched on the other societal consideration, which is economics. Um, so, so the the question is is an important question, and what happened, by the way, just anecdotally, when we dealt with this uh, end of life law, the neonatal uh, community in Israel couldn't come to an agreement what to do in such situations, and therefore it is not included in the Israeli law. What you do with end of life decisions of someone who is just born. That's an end-of-life situation for something, someone who is just born. But in general, the autonomy principle for children is usually transferred to the parents. That's the natural guide, guide uh, people who, who guard this uh, baby, because obviously he's not an autonomous agent. And as you pointed out correctly, that by itself may create a problem because the two parents may disagree with each other and we find it all the time. The father says, leave her alone, let her die, and the mother says, do everything possible uh, to continue her life or vice versa. Now, the Israeli law after the fact says, and, and that is uh, halakhically acceptable, that if it's a very preemie baby, 22, 23, uh, below viability in most instances, then whatever the parents decide, that is what we do. So if the parents say, we want to withhold treatment, then we don't treat the baby and the baby dies. If the parents say, we want to give it a chance and treat the baby, then we treat it, and then it becomes a complicated case, and then we have to decide day by day, how far do we go with the treatment or where do we stop treating and the baby will die. So, in principle, it is not different. But obviously, the emotions and the, and the consequences may be very different. Now, sometimes people avoid this uh, notion that everyone almost agrees that a fully viable baby should be resuscitated. So let's say it's 24, 25 weeks, it should be resuscitated. But I, as a pediatric neurologist, get the outcomes of the success of the neonatologists. They make their effort, 24, 25 survives, but a large percentage are CPs and epileptics and mental retarded. So where do you draw the line? What percentage of disability you say we will forego treatment, and what percentage of disability you say you have to treat, because maybe a certain percentage will. 
come out well, and we don't know it ahead of time. So that was the dilemma of the neonatal uh, society, and they couldn't come to, to an agreement because it's bad on this side and it's bad on that side. So that is where it comes. Now, the monetary aspect will take us, I think, a whole evening to discuss, so I'll skip it at a moment unless uh, you insist. Uh, I'll ask uh, I'll ask Rabbi Steinberg a question. Texas recently enacted a law that said any fetus that is aborted must be buried, cannot be cremated. And are there any Jewish teachings on how you bury uh, uh, an aborted uh, a fetus? Yes, so if it is a, a fetus that dies within 30 days, less than 30 days post uh, delivery, then it is buried in a general burial area, usually without a name, without, uh, without any identity, so it's a group burial, but it must be buried. Even parts of it must be buried, and if it's a male, it's even circumcised before it's buried. Question. Anyone? <laughs> Rabbi Steinberg, I wanted to follow up with your example, and perhaps Josh, you can also comment on this. The question that you had raised, the circumstance you raised, in that example where someone was brain dead and their heart was still working, and we wait 12 to 24 hours. But of course, remember there's someone in Tel Aviv who's waiting for that heart. So now the question, you have pikuach nefesh and you have pikuach nefesh. So the question is, what do you do? So the rule that everyone accepts, whether you are for brain death or for cardiac death, is that you don't harvest an organ from a live person. Every one of us has a functioning heart, and I hope a healthy heart, and there is someone that needs the heart. Will we say, okay, go ahead, take one of these hearts, and, and save the other one? No, why? Because, as you said, the Kuach Nefesh is, takes priority, but ain't Lochim Nefesh Mepne Nefesh. You're not allowed to kill one person in order to save another one. So if you agree to the principle that a brain dead person is dead, then indeed, you are obligated to be an organ donor because you're going to save a person. But if by your definition, the heart-beating person is still alive, taking out his heart, even for the noble purpose of saving someone else, was killing this person. And you can't kill this person the same way as I can't kill any of you here and take their heart. So we conceptually understand that brain death is an obvious uh, death situation. But not everyone agrees, because it's a philosophical definition. It is not a biological definition. I, as a physician, have no stand in defining the moment of death as long as certain organs are still functioning. In the 18th century, the definition was three days after cardiorespiratory death. Because after three days, each and every cell and organ in the body is dead. But prior to that, as, as, as you all know, even when we bury a person, still there are functional life out in his body while he is buried. It takes days for the rest of the body to die. 
Yet we define him dead from a social point of view, not from a biological point of view. So there's no advantage from a physiological point of view to define brain death or cardiac death as one better than the other as physicians. We, we can't do it. It's what society agrees. <coughs> so if indeed society agrees that a brain dead person is dead, then all his organs that are alive are considered organs of a dead person, and therefore they go for transplants. But if we'll say that as long as the nails are still growing, he is still alive, then you can't touch him until the nails will die, which can take three, four days after cardiac death. So therefore, it, it is not an argument to say, let's agree on brain death, and therefore we can harvest the heart and save someone, because it depends before death on how you define the moment of death. question with the uh, similar circumstances. You have a patient who's brain dead, but his heart is beating, and, if this, and this hospital is in the middle of nowhere, half an hour away from every other hospital. And a uh, child is brought into the emergency room who had an overdose of some medication which suppressed his respiration. So he needs that respirator. And it's the last respirator in the hospital. What do you do? Do you take the uh, branded person off the respirator and give it to the child who will live, you know, for this foreseeable future, or do you let the uh, hundred-year-old person who's branded uh, keep the respirator and let the child die? Okay, so so that nowadays, fortunately, is very theoretical. We have enough respirators for everyone, and usually it doesn't happen. Ah, what about the MMA? during Hurricane Katrina? Yeah. You actually circumstances. No, no, yeah. I'll come to it. But I'm saying then it's very rare if it were. But more frequently asked question is, if you have a brain dead uh, person with a beating heart in the ICU on a respirator, and he's, his family believes that he's still alive. And that's the last bed of the ICU. And that happens all the time. And now there's a car accident and someone needs this bed to save his life for, for many years. So in this case, you take out the person who is brain dead with his respirator, you put him on the floor, and you give this bed to someone who has greater chances. That's called prioritizing. And that is halakhically accepted, medically accepted, and legally accepted. So that the family can claim, even according to this amended law that I told you about, the family can say leave him on a respirator, but they can't say leave him in the ICU, because the ICU is to save people who have chance to survive. So as long as the bed is available, why aggravate the family and, and, and take the patient out? Leave him there. I'm not talking about the money again. That uh, is a separate issue. But if this bed is required for someone who is going to survive and live, then he takes priority on the bed. It doesn't mean that you have to kill, quote unquote, or not quote unquote, the brain dead, heart beating person. 
So you live on a respirator, but his chances to survive on a respirator on the floor are slimmer than if you would have stayed in the ICU, but that is okay, that you do. Now, if you are in a situation where you have only one machine and he is brain dead, I assume, and I don't know to say in the name of everyone, but I assume that in this case, they would agree to move the uh, respirator from the brain dead to the one that has greater chances to survive. If it would be just the age, as was hinted here, that he is 100 years old, that this is an 18-year-old, that is not a valid consideration from a lucky point of view. You're not allowed to kill a 100-year-old man to save an 18-year-old child. That doesn't work. But if he's already brain dead, and it's a debatable question, and it's maybe that he's really dead, and here is someone that can survive, that probably would be acceptable by many, if not all. Um, this is not hypothetical. Uh, there was actually, uh, uh, during Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans, there were indeed a number of hospitals that were reduced to one respirator, one ventilator, and they actually studied after the fact how doctors on the fly made decisions of who lives and who dies, and they did exactly what Rabbi Steinberg said, it's not halakhically approved. They, they, they said the 20-year-old gets it and the 80-year-old gets off the machine, you unplug them. And, and that's why um, there were surveys and studies done of how to do this, and most people intrinsically said, we will give it to the younger person, the older person, and Halakha teaches the opposite of this. Well, there are two options in this uh, scenario that you described. There is a situation where you get 20 injured people, and you have one respirator, and you have to decide who to give it to, which is different than you decided to give it to someone, you put him on it, and now you're disconnecting him where you're doing an act that kills him in order to save someone else. So halakhically, there are parameters who to prioritize if you have more injured people than supply, than beds, than respirators, than manpower, whatever is, is lacking, who do you give priority to treatment? That is halakhically validated in different ways. But what is not validated is to kill someone in order to save someone else. Hi, um, I'm a neonatal fellow. Someone else um, touched on a neonatal question. This lecture is great because it touched on a lot of questions that I've had. I'm a third year fellow about to graduate and a lot of, I have a lot of questions along the way. Um, the first one that was kind of touched on was the, the peri-viable time. So in, in my institution at, at uh, UT, um, our, if, if they're less than 23 weeks, we don't save them, even though that's not every institution, but we tell parents that they're allowed to decide up until 25 weeks. Now personally, seeing the outcomes, outcomes for 24 weekers can be pretty good, but if I'm the only neonatologist on at night, now I'm a fellow, so they're still an attending above me, but if I'm the only neonatologist at night and I will be working there next year, this is a legal question as, as well as, you know, a lovely question, so the parents say, listen, we, we just don't want to put our baby through that, and there's plenty of reasons to agree with that. But if I personally don't agree with it, how does that work? I cannot, I can't resuscitate a baby that the parents decide not to resuscitate. The second question I have is more, probably more for everybody else, especially for pediatrics. You know, we don't have patients that decide things for themselves. It's 
especially in neonatology. So we guide the conversation many times. So if we have a baby that a lot of times will bring in neuro pediatric neurologists who are, we think, aren't going to be viable as far as having a normal life whatsoever, or we have babies that have such hypoplastic lungs, they're probably not gonna live much longer. Um, so we start to guide the conversation to withdrawal of care or um, just explaining to parents, you can put a trach and a G-tube in this baby, but this baby's going to be like this even in 20 years. So, you know, how are, as Jewish doctors, how are we allowed to guide the conversations? It's all your life. <laughs> well, I, I think you went into many, many specific details that perhaps it's better we talk uh, privately. I, I don't think everyone here even followed all your nuances that you say, but some of the principles. So, a 22 year, a 22 week gestation baby is probably not viable in most places, although, for instance, in Japan, they do full resuscitation and they get results. So, it, it, it's a self fulfilling prophecy. You don't treat them, so they die. It's true. But if you will treat them, probably a certain percentage would survive. But you're allowed to assume, based on your local statistics, that that is an unviable baby. So if the parents say, treat the baby, you may object. As, as the person who says, why should I waste all the resources, he'll die anyway, right? But usually it's the opposite. The parents say, don't treat. And you may be hesitant whether you're right or wrong by doing so. So I think 22, even 23 weeks gestation, if the decision is to withhold treatment, that would be alarmingly validated as well. So if that is what the parents want, uh, you can go along with it in the delivery room. Just now born and the decision is yes or no in a minute. Uh, otherwise, you lost the vote. If it is an older baby, 24 and on, even if the parents object, halakhically it's invalid, and at least in Israel, it's illegal. So they don't have the power to let a viable baby die just because a certain percentage will end up suffering. So that is something that uh, is easily solved, at least in Israel, both legally and politically, on, on both uh, directions. One uh, caution to say, and that's an experience of many, many years, when a pregnant woman comes to deliver and you estimate that it's 22 weeks. How sure are you that it's 22? And if we extend it to 23, the difference between 23 plus zero and 23 plus six, and you still call it 23, is, is a whole world of difference. So it, if it's closer to 24, why shouldn't you treat it just because you're missing a day, but you still call it 23? That's a very tricky, uh, issue, depending on, on how you want to solve it, that's how you call it, right? And the other issue is, how are you sure that it's 22 weeks? You did an ultrasound, you did the Dubovitz test, you looked at the baby. There are a lot of mistakes. And here the mistake of a few days of assessment is a mistake between life and death. So, at least in, in Sharetzedek, our rule is that if at 22, which the baby is born and he's viable, he's crying, he's moving, 
we treat it because maybe he's 23 and a half, <coughs> maybe he's 24 already, and we made a mistake. If he if he's delivered barely alive or even not breathing, if it he would be 24, 25, we would resuscitate. Here we don't resuscitate. So that has to be taken into account. Um, yeah, the, the only legal issues is could you be compelled to withdraw the care if in your conscience you have to require it and under federal law you can't and I mean I suppose if there's another attending physician they can do it but you can't be compelled to do it so there is there is room for your conscience and you talk to him and he'll, he'll give you some better insights than I could ever. The last question. Thanks very much for a very erudite talk. The rabbi has presented it as though uh, personal agency stands as the most important value. That autonomy stands as uh, one of the most important uh, considerations. And I'm not sure, and I'd like you to comment, rabbi, about whether that's a halachic position or whether other values get deployed in decision making such as the greatest good for the greatest amount of people which can also influence a medical decision in other words uh, what does halacha uh, speak to the second part of the the equation and I'm sure there must be four or five other values which are uh, involved. Thank you. So I think what happened in this country, particularly the United States, more so than in Europe and, and Israel, is that the society here moved both legally and ethically from extreme paternalism to extreme autonomy. In other words, up to about 50 years ago or so, the Hippocratic oath was really directing towards a paternalistic approach, which means I as a physician who studied so many years, who has so much experience, who has seen so many cases similar in the past, know better than this particular patient who hardly can read and write, who never encountered this situation, that even if I don't explain to him, he won't understand what I'm talking to him, and yet he says, do so, do the other way. So that was the paternalistic approach. This has totally changed this country to 180 degree, to the degree that paternalism is considered a dirty word in ethics, and in law it's suitable. You can, you can sue a physician who acted on a paternalistic way, and autonomy overtook as an overriding principle. Now even that was an evolution because the founders of these principles, Butram and Childress in Georgetown, in the Kennedy Institute in Georgetown University, they identified four principles in medical ethics. <coughs> Autonomy, beneficence, non-maleficence, and justice in a sense of distributive justice. Now, there are four principles, and yet autonomy prevailed to be the only principle, because the claim is, let's say, beneficence is a value. How do you know what is benef beneficial to this patient? The answer is, ask him, and he'll tell you what he considers beneficial. 
So beneficence became a subset of autonomy. Depends on what he said. <laughs> I think that it went far too far with the autonomy to the uh, degree that the value of life as a value has been eliminated and purposefully so in Buchamp and Childress uh, dissertations. They, they write that life has no value unless you talk about quality of life. But how do you find quality of life? And who are you to say that this quality of life is worth living and this quality of life is not worth? But that's how they developed it. And the only value that stands now as an independent ethical value, which became a legal value, is autonomy. And I think it went far too far. And indeed, Pellegrino, <laughs> from the same institution in, uh, in Georgetown University, wrote a, a very nice book called For the Patient's Good. And his formula was strong autonomy, weak paternalism. In other words, a physician cannot deprive himself from his responsibility to the patient. And sometimes the patients make fatal mistakes using their autonomy for their own detrimental consequences. So you as a physician have to stand against it. And halachically, as much as we respect the autonomy of, of an individual, if he makes mistakes that will cost his life, we don't respect his autonomy. We treat him even forcefully against his wish in order for him to stay alive. And for instance, if a pious Jew says, I must fast on Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur is something that I, I'm waiting all year long to repent and, and I must fast. But his medical condition is such that if he will fast, he will be injured. We force him to eat on Yom Kippur, halachit. Because life takes precedence over Yom Kippur. Life takes certainly precedence over autonomy. So it depends on, on the mixture of the values and not one value all the time. First of all, thank you guys both for a very enlightening uh, discussion. Uh, I'm an adult infectious disease physician and I guess I in practice now face crisis of conscience virtually every day. And while I know we don't have time to talk about it, a lot of it is going to be based on what the economics of medicine are. And unfortunately, I don't think that we can take our religious teachings as well as the legals and separate the economic issues. I can give you examples and examples. I guess the one quick case I can say is a patient that needed a special machine so he would not bleed to death. Uh, he's sitting in the hospital, the ICU alert and attentive, and the insurance company would not cover the machine, and the hospital refused to pay the $50 to bring the machine in, so we watched him 48 hours later since he bleed to death like the exorcist. So how do you, and none of the religious teachings that I've done, and none of the legal people that I have have been able to help with these situations that are happening every day. Our brain dead people can sit on ventilators for a year, and we sometimes are forced to push whatever the definition of euthanasia is by withholding things that we know can keep them alive. So how do we use our religious teachings? How do we use our legal system? How do we tell our new stars in Congress and, and the presidency here to see how we're going to get the economic issues into this particular <coughs> Because in, in reality, for a lot of positions, that is what's driving the day of 
and it's very difficult for us that actually do have a conscious patient. Um, so I'll, I'll start. Um, uh, years ago, when the affordable care was being debated, uh, Sarah Palin, if you remember her, uh, made waves by speaking of Obamacare's death panels. Remember the death panels? Uh, so Obamacare doesn't actually have death panels, but does have one group called the IPAP, the Independent Payment Advisory Board, which was specifically authorized to provide guidance for end-of-life planning and provided funding to doctors to talk to their patients about end-of-life planning. And uh, doctors can discuss whether there's something they even want to talk about. But, but, but there is movement afoot to provide more payments for these sorts of uh, difficult solutions at, at the end of life. And so people are, are, are leaving. Are we out of time, Rabbi? Um. Rabbi? Uh, just quick uh, comments, because really, as, as I said, that is a very heavy subject, and you are right by asking those questions. Um, in principle, if the budget would have been a closed circle so that whatever you say on plan A goes to plan B and you know that plan B is preferable than plan A, then it would be a distributive justice principle that you should do it that way. The reality is not that. The reality is that if you save the money on a 90-year-old gentleman and he doesn't live another week, and you save $100,000, where did this $100,000 go to? And no one can give you an answer. And it's not clear that it goes to a better purpose. And the example I always give is myself. I was paid to come here, probably on the account of someone who died because they thought they are saving uh, the money there, and here it came to me. I don't think it's a fair trade. So, ethically speaking, it is not a simple matter. Yes, indeed, economy is a constraint. No country, including big USA, doesn't have enough uh, resources to treat everyone to the full degree. That's a given. But from here to the right, that therefore I let someone die because I can use it for better purposes, you have to prove me that indeed you use this dollar to a better purpose. And I don't think you can do it. So you have a patient in front of you that is going to die or not. And you are telling me, let him die because the money can go for a better purpose. Show me that it goes to a better purpose. So I think ethically it's not a simple decision to make. Now, because there are not enough resources, at least from a halakhic point of view, we make the following distinction. As a society, we are allowed to allocate funds to whatever societal needs are. So for instance, if we have a budget of a country, we can take some of the money to build a stadium, to build, to, to build a museum, although it doesn't save any life. And if you would decide that saving life is the most important task of a society, then why waste money on museums and, and, and on gardens? Take this money and build another ICU, or add another ICU bed. And that we're not doing. Why? Because society as such has legitimate needs that are not necessarily saving every life. So as a society, it is okay to say we have only six 
ICU beds in our hospital, and the next funding will go to a dermatology unit, which in most instances doesn't save lives. And, and not build another ICU to save more lives. That's okay. So if the insurance company says, to this level we are paying, and from here down we are not paying, so it's not a decision on this particular patient that he will die because I want his money for a better purpose. It is because as a policy, the money is allocated differently, which as a society we are allowed to do. That is not to say that I as an individual physician who is responsible for an individual patient who can save his life, am not obligated to do whatever I can to, to break the bureaucracy and, and help this patient to survive. And I, I do it daily. I, I fight with, with our administration all the time. Sometimes I succeed, sometimes I don't. But that is my re private responsibility towards the patient. But as a society, we can divide the money in a way that societal needs are fulfilled. I don't think that a basketball player who gets, I don't know, $50 million just to to throw the ball into the basket is equivalent to using this $50 million to build a new hospital in there. And yet we do it all the time. Thank you very much to our speakers. Um, we're going to present... We're going to present each of them with a, an award. This is for Professor Blackman. Wow, look at that. He's presented to Professor Josh Blackman, JD, JI, Ninth Annual Conference on Jewish Medical Ethics, Houston, Texas, January 26th. Great, look at this. For Dr. Steinberg, it's been a lot, of, it's not his first rodeo in Texas. He's been here numerous times at this conference. We've, uh, we've bought him many, we ran out of gift ideas <laughs> in his office. I can attest all the gifts we gave him in his, are hanging in his office at Sharon Sedek. He has a set of long horns. He has on his door a shalom y'all already. So he, he has all the Texas gifts. So we had to uh, commission an artist. Um, this is the Tefillah Tarofe. Um, and it's in Hebrew. I'll translate it. Not the whole Tefillah, but this is Maimonides' prayer for physicians. And it says to Harav Dr. Steinberg um, for his um, association in the Jewish Medical Ethics Conference, Rafu and Alakha, Houston, Texas. This is actually Jerusalem's tongue. Came all the way from Israel. Oh. take it back. Thank you, Rabbi. Thank you. A few quick uh, notes. Um, first of all, if you want an encore of Dr. Steinberg, please look in the back of your program. Um, he will be here over Shabbos at the Maryland Minion, and you can register online if you want to come to He's um, speaking three times over the weekend. On Friday night, his topic is terrorism crisis, ethical and halachic issues in treating terrorists. And Shabbat morning, we'll be talking about why Jewish medical ethics, the contribution of Judaism to solving medical ethical issues. And on Shabbat afternoon at 4.30, you'll be talking about palliative care and end-of-life decisions. So everyone's invited to that. Please uh, again, take home your program. 
and you can register online. So you, um, also make sure you did sign in downstairs if you want your CME and CLE. Um, and one last thank you that was left out, my father-in-law spent the whole morning ironing the tablecloths for this event. I'd like to thank him for very hard. And immediately after we conclude, there will be a matter of service if someone wants to stay to pray our video. Thank you all very much for coming. Thank you.